0: We should be excited regularly that we get to gather together as God's people, that Hebrews says to not forsake the assembly, but we get to gather together to receive encouragement and to encourage one another as long as it's called today. So thanks for praying for the persecuted church. I ask you to continue to do that, and may it stir us up to be even more grateful for the privileges that we enjoy that God has given to us. Well, turn your Bibles to Jonah. We'll be finishing the book of Jonah, but not finishing this series on the book of Jonah. So we're going to be going through the last chapter today, and then we have a couple more messages on the book of Jonah. Where we're going to go back and look at some themes that are in the book of Jonah, and then after that, finishing up a few messages, and then in January, we're looking forward to opening up the book of Revelation together. So um, let, right now, let's turn your Bibles to Jonah. We'll be reading the 10th verse of chapter three all the way through the 11th verse of chapter 4. And as you listen, I want you to hear that this is God's very word for you. This is God speaking to you and me his words today afresh through this word that was probably about 2,800 years old, and yet it has fresh application for today. So listen to God's word. When God saw what they did, referring to the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, isn't this what I said when I was yet in my country this is why I made haste to flee to Tarsus, for I knew that you were a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now, the Lord appointed a plant and, and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I, not I, pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that challenges us. Thank you, God, that you're you're not like us. Thank you, God, that you have mercy on those who don't deserve mercy, that you are slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, that you are nothing like us, and that you, God, have mercy on those who hate God, I pray that you would challenge our hearts and our minds through this passage. God, I pray that you would stir us up and that your mercy would challenge us to the very core of who we are. God, I pray that your word would come alive today, that your living and active word would penetrate our hearts and minds. Holy Spirit, make us alive to hear from you and listen to you, to be attentive to your words. And God, I pray that you would give me the gift of your spirit to proclaim your word In power. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I was reading a story from the Daily Mail reporter from back in 2011, and they share the story of the incredible mercy that this woman showed to this young man who killed her son. The story goes A mother whose only child was shot dead has shown the ultimate forgiveness by inviting her son's killer to live next door. Mary Johnson, 59, now lives in the apartment adjoining the home of 34-year-old O'Shea Israel, and they share a porch. In February of 93, Mrs. Johnson's son, Laraman Bird, 20, was shot in the head by a 16-year-old Israel after an argument at a party. Israel, who's involved with drugs and gangs, he was tried as an adult, sentenced to 25 and a half years. He served 17 years, and then he was released. He now lives back in the neighborhood where he grew up, next door to the mother of the young man he murdered. Mrs. Johnson said she originally wanted justice, and she wanted to see Israel locked up for what he'd done. She said, my son was gone, I was angry, and I hated this boy, I hated his mother. The murder was like a tsunami, shock, disbelief, hatred, anger, hatred, blame, hatred. I wanted to be caged up like the animal that he was. Instead, she decided to found a support group and counseled mothers whose children had been killed and encouraged them to reach out to families of their murderers who were victims of another kind. Hurt is hurt. It doesn't matter what sides you're on, she said. Then just a few years ago, the 59-year-old teacher and devout Christian asked if she could meet Israel at Minnesota's Stillwater State Prison. She said she felt compelled to see if there was a way in which she could forgive her son's killer. At first he refused, but then nine months later changed his mind. Israel said he was shocked by the fact that she even wanted to meet him. He said, "I I believe the first thing she said to me was, look, you don't know me, I don't know you, let's just start with right now and I was totally befuddled. The pair met regularly after that. When Israel was released from prison around 18 months ago, Mrs. Johnson introduced him to her landlord, who, with her blessing, invited Israel to move into the building. Mrs. Johnson and Israel are now close friends. The situation she puts down to her strong religious beliefs, but she says she also has a selfish motive. Unforgiveness is like a cancer. It eats you from the inside out. It's not about the other person. Me forgiving him doesn't diminish what he's done. Yes, he murdered my son, but the forgiveness... It's not just for him, it's for me. She wears a locket with one side is a photo of her and her son. The other picture has a picture of Israel. He admits he still struggles with the extraordinary situation he finds himself in. I haven't totally forgiven myself. I'm learning to forgive and I'm still growing, trying to forgive myself. Israel now hopes to prove himself to the mother of the man he killed. He works through a recycling parent the other day, goes to college at night. He's determined to pay back her clemency by contributing to society. He visits prisons and churches, talks about forgiveness and reconciliation. Mrs. Johnson often joins him. They tell their story together. He said, a conversation can take you a long way. This young man, Israel, although he'll never pay back, that's not the point. He's been dramatically affected by the mercy and forgiveness of, of Mary Johnson. It turned his life upside down. That's meant to be the effect of mercy. That's meant to be the effect of mercy, of God's mercy, of godly mercy. And this, this Christian woman is showing godly mercy to someone who does not deserve it. And this whole story of Jonah, why Jonah is having such a hard time, Jonah in chapter 4, he is revolting because he can't deal with mercy for killers, for rapists, for his enemies. He doesn't know how to deal with it. Yet In this account, what what we need to see, what Jonah needed to see is that God's mercy was meant to affect him and challenge him personally. God's mercy was meant to have an effect, not esoterically or not third party, just, hey, I like God's mercy, but it's actually meant to change him and who he is and how he relates to people around him. He needed to see it was God's mercy and not God's justice that he needed. He needed to see the mercy of God was not just for himself, but God's mercy was intended for all those who need mercy. He needed to see that, that God's mercy has meant to challenge us to the core of who we are, to, to challenge our self-righteousness. Jonah needed to see that God's mercy is available to everyone regardless of background or, in his day even, political or national ideas or whatever sins they were currently clinging to. He needed to see that God's mercy challenges our hearts. He needed to see that God's mercy is compelling. That's the effect of Jonah 4, is that we're meant to see God's mercy is compelling and is meant to challenge us. If you're sitting here okay today with seeing the mercy that God has on the Ninevites and it doesn't challenge you to respond, then I would encourage you, listen to God's word closer, because God's mercy is meant to challenge us at the very core of who we are. And that's really the main idea that I want us to see this morning, that that God has for us in in Jonah 4 is that God's mercy, it challenges the very core of who we are. God's mercy is not just meant for us to receive it and go on our way. It's supposed to challenge us at the core of who we are and how we treat other people. That's what we see with Jonah. And right at the outset, we see that it challenges our very ideas of justice. That's, that's the first main truth we're going to see that we're going to unpack from this passage. Is it challenges our very ideas of justice. The way that it puts it in, in the original text is that it says that the way it phrases it literally, although the ESV puts it, it says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. It, 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 the literal translation of that would be it, it was an exceedingly evil thing to Jonah. Jonah saw the mercy of God and that the people responded, repented, and that God didn't wipe them out. And, and it said that it was an exceedingly evil thing to Jonah. How do you react God has mercy on people that you don't think deserve mercy. Jonah is struggling. How in the world can God let the, the evil Ninevites go unpunished? If you were here at the beginning, you, you saw that the Ninevites were the worst of the worst. They were ISIS to the extreme, torturers. They were publicly torturing Israeli citizens. They would take them and bring them back to the land of Assyria. And so for the idea of those people getting off scot-free, and, and Jonah was living in a theocracy where, where God was the one who enforced justice, and so if God let people go, justice never happened for them, in, at least in Jonah's mind, and so when God turned his anger away from them, Jonah's anger was turned up, That's what we see there's some irony here, and the last verse of chapter 3, it says that he, God relented, he turned his wrath away, and then now what do we see in contrast here is, is Jonah's wrath gets turned up. He didn't like it. He was okay with the idea of being rescued and saved from imminent death. You know, if, if someone saved me from imminent death, I think I would like that. We're meant to like that. We're meant to enjoy the idea that God would save us from imminent death. But he was not okay with God saving them. He was okay with the idea of being rescued. He, he gotten swallowed by this great fish that was a rescue when his heads went down the head went down to the bottom, and it says the weeds wrapped around his head, and this great fish rescued him at the last moment. Jonah has this deathbed confession where he says, Oh, God, save me. And we realize that it's really not a repentant prayer from this chapter. And yet God still saves him knowing that. Jonah was okay with God forgiving him for disobedience and running from God. He was okay with him having mercy on him despite his sins. He was really glad. Chapter two, we saw that he cries out and he actually worships God. There's this worshipable prayer and he says, God, thank you. Thank you. When I cried out, you saved me. But what does he say now when he saves somebody else that he thinks deserves justice? He was happy that salvation belonged to the Lord as long as he didn't give it to other people who didn't deserve it. Now, before you get too self-righteous about Jonah and think you could never feel that way, let me ask you, is there anyone in your life, in your past, or currently, that you'd be glad to see suffer just a little? Come on, be honest with yourself. All of us probably have one person or two that we struggle with feeling feelings of forgiveness and extending mercy to, that we, we want them to kind of pay. We want them to kind of suffer a little. Is anybody you're bitter or resentful against? Let God speak to your heart, anybody you're thinking about now. Anybody who's wronged you, or maybe who's wronged a loved one, even harder, sometimes you can say, okay, I'll forgive people as long as it's against me, but if they hurt my kids, or my family, or friend, now imagine whatever that wrong might be, that that person goes free and doesn't have to pay. Maybe you can't think of anybody like that. Jonah definitely could. You see, imagine if somebody like Hitler, or Mussolini, or the the Charleston church shooter or a group of people who were responsible for unspeakable atrocities against women and children and they're set free with no punishment, I think you'd struggle too. Where would the justice be in that? And That's what, that's what Jonah's wrestling with. Where is justice, God? Where is justice for people who deserve justice? What in the world is this? Are you passing over justice? Ninevites weren't guilty of hypothetical evils. They, they were extremely great evils, what it says about the city. And yet, the original readers, as they're listening to this account, they're reading this account 800 years before Jesus, and probably somewhere around the time that the Assyrians are carrying them off into captivity, they probably have mixed emotions. They're reading and they're seeing, wait a minute, Jonah was an oracle of God and he disobeyed God's oracle. That doesn't make sense. That was shocking. And then they see that, now now, when Jonah has an opportunity to cry out, he doesn't cry out, and the... The sailors cry out, and then he has counted repeated times where he, he doesn't repent, and yet God still rescues him from death. And then you see that God's hand was clearly on the word that God sent, and all these identifies repent. And so you have mixed feelings as in Israel, and you're like, oh, that's amazing, that's awesome, God's done this great work. And yet, at the same time, you're struggling And yet they see that, wait a minute, Jonah is rejecting the word of God most high. And Jonah is saying, God, you're wrong. And that's what Jonah's doing in chapter 4. God, you're wrong. Yeah, I'm right. I have every right to be angry with you, God, because you're not doing things my way. You're not carrying out my sense of justice. So, you know, they could see, the original readers, the problems with Jonah they knew that, wait a minute, no mere man can argue with the Almighty, and yet that's what Jonah's doing here. He is saying, God, I'm right, you're wrong. And they would have been revolted at that reading of this man arguing with God. That's just what Jonah does. And, and look down your Bibles in verse two. Now He's taking issue with God himself, and get this, when he's taking issue with God, he quotes God himself. He he says, he says, yeah, God, well, you know, not only I knew this was going to happen, that's why I left to begin with, because I knew this was going to happen, and this is not right, and I'm not okay with it, and you're wrong. And then he says, and he quotes God, when God revealed himself to Moses, who he was, and he puts his hand over Moses, he passes by, and he says, um, I, I know you're your gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That is who God revealed himself to be to his people. He also would have known the words of the prophet Joel, when Joel wrote about the same thing to the people of Israel in the midst of their rebellion, he, he wrote to the people of Israel. And so Jonah would have known this. And God was appealing to the people of Israel to repent. And Joel, too, using some similar words, and he says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, in Joel 2, verse 12, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. And that's what the Ninevites have done. He says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent? And those are the very words that the king of Nineveh used in chapter 3. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent? Jonah would have been familiar with Psalm 145, the psalmist, when he says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord, now get this, what Jonah was ignoring here, or not liking or struggling with, was says, The Lord is gracious to, or good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. Jonah was okay as that all meant all Israelites, just not all. And all he has made was, was cool with him as was as it wasn't all those heathens. And then the original readers, they must have been struck at that point by the fact that, hey, wait a minute. The Ninevites, they believed God and it was counted to them as righteousness. God turns away his wrath, just like our father Abraham. They, they must have been torn, seeing this righteous judge of all the earth in passing over the evil of the Ninevites. And yet, they also saw Jonah's blatant pride. He was angry with God. He didn't like God, who God was at his core. You ever, you ever, you ever feel that way? You're like, God, I, I don't like what you're doing right now. I don't agree with what you're doing right now. God, I'd rather it be different. All too often, we're like Jonah. We're, our problem is we're angry at the very nature of God, how God himself describes himself. And Remember the parable that Jesus told about the, the prodigal sons? We're a little like the older brother. Jonah here is being a little like the older brother in the parable where the older brother doesn't want the father to be so lavish in his grace to the wayward son. Look how Jonah responds in verse three. Look down your Bibles with me if you will. He says, therefore, Lord, please take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. It's kind of like Jonah is saying, no way, God, over my dead body. He wants God to be different. He wants God to be like him and not who he says he is. This should challenge us. How do we view God? Do we want God to be who he says he is or who we think he should be? What about when we're faithful and God doesn't do what we want in our lives, where we remain sick despite his healing other people, when we're desperate for his healing touch, when we struggle in some other way, we're desperate, asking for relief, and he doesn't give it to us the way we want Jonah here, he's, his suffering was mental. It was emotional. It was, it was still difficult for him. Maybe some of you can relate, you're experiencing mental, or emotional suffering, your point of being so angry with God, that you feel like you just want to die? you want to give up. You're so discouraged. You think you know better, we believe in God, but we're angry with Him or the injustice that we feel, or our experience that we'd rather die than continue on in life. having to deal with pain. Others might deal with physical pain or disability, and you struggle with who God is, and you feel like it's better for you to die than to live. God wants you to experience his mercy in and through these things, to to see who he is even more. These things are meant to teach us, to show us the greatness and the goodness and the mercy of God, and make us worship. And Jonah's angry with God here, and, and Jonah's so angry with God, and then... God asks him a question, looking in verse 4, he says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Or maybe more literally, I like how the NIV puts it, have you any right to be angry? Jonah, what gives? Do you think you have a right to be angry here? And, and I can't help but think that when God asked him that question, he, he remembered about Job, the earliest book that was written. In Job 40, he says the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? That's kind of what God's doing here. He's he's saying, Jonah, really, do you do well to be angry? Are you questioning me that you might be in the right? Watch out when God starts asking rhetorical questions like that, by the way. So often, what Jonah was doing is what we do, and we're angry like Jonah, right? We justify our own feelings and actually accuse God of wrong. We might be justified in how we feel. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm right. I'm justified that I'm angry, that I'm resentful, that I'm bitter right now because they did that, because they're not getting punished. And God wanted Jonah to see he deserved condemnation too, to admit that he had no right to be angry. But look at what happens. Look down your Bibles. Does God, does Jonah answer God? In verse 4, Jonah asks him a question. But look in verse 5. Jonah does not answer. You know, I get a little upset when I admit it, it's my issue when I talk to my wife and I ask her a question and maybe she's distracted she turns around doesn't answer me. It's a little rude, right? You know, You ever feel that way? Your kids maybe, you talk to your kids and and you ask them a question, or you tell them something, and then they just act like you don't exist and walk away from you. Anybody have those things happen? It might, must just be me, I, I swear. Um, it can be a little frustrating, right? And I want to, you know, I want to take action at least, I'll say that. I wanna, and sometimes I'm, I'm angry. I'm like, how rude. And how rude Jonah is here. He, he doesn't answer God. God says, do you do well to be angry? Jonah goes outside the city. He just goes and sets outside the city, he makes this booth, which was a, like a, a tent or a shelter, a lean-to kind of thing, somewhere between a teepee and a lean-to, and he, he has these sticks and leaves that he can gather from the desert, which probably was pretty feeble, and he makes this booth, and he sits under it in the shade until he can see what would become of the city, it says. And as he's on the way out, he's, he's passing through the city on the way out, and he's, he's, he's seeing that the city is just full of idolatry, and remember what he said earlier was, you know, hey, those who bow down these pagan idols, that won't result in anything good. And there's even, a, I think we have a picture of it. There's a picture of the gates of Nineveh. Is it, did it come out or not? There's a picture of the gates of Nineveh and there's this big plaster, their they're king, and he's like a god with wings because he's so great. And that, that gate was probably built just around the time, right before Jonah. And Jonah's going out to be reminded of this idolatry. Now he's thinking, I'm even more justified. So I'm gonna go outside. I'm gonna see what becomes of this evil city. And he doesn't go, he doesn't answer God, he salks, and then, but even with some shade, he's created these feeble sticks, this booth, and you can take that down if you want. He, he creates this booth, and he's sitting under it, and something you have to know is where Nineveh was located was just um, just outside of the city of Mosul, Iraq, where that is today. And so when he goes out east outside of the city, there's these hills that were a few miles outside of the area and in the summertime these temperatures can get up as an average temperature in July is somewhere between 110 and 115 it can get warm and i don't care where you're from if it's a dry heat that's still pretty darn hot and so jonah's sitting there and, and he's baking and he's in the shade and he's he's angry he's not answering god and I, I, he's just brewing seeing what's going to happen i'm going to i'm you know what i just want this city to burn and he's this angry prophet sweating it out, smoldering mentally and physically. But what does God do? Look in verse 6. What does God do with Jonah? It's, it's astounding. God, God doesn't do what I would do. I'd be angry with Jonah. I might give him a little smack or two. Like, seriously? And God, who's not only sovereign over people in the weather and the ocean, but sovereign over everything that grows, he is merciful and he appoints and commands this plant to grow. What do we see in verses six through 11 here is that we see God is unpacking for Jonah. He wants Jonah to get the point that mercy challenges our own hearts. His mercy is meant to challenge God, Jonah's heart. His mercy is meant to challenge our hearts. God's mercy challenges our hearts. And if your heart's not challenged by God's mercy, you probably don't get God's mercy for yourself. So God appoints this, I wouldn't have been so nice to Jonah I would have, like, spoken and burned him a little bit. You know, just a little singeing around the edges or something, you know. Made it even more uncomfortable for Jonah. It was like, you are wrong, and enveloped him in fire or something, you know, and and teach him a lesson. And God teaches a lesson that's merciful here. First, God gives him a chance to be undone by his mercy by appointing this little plant. And he appoints this plant and makes it come up overnight over Jonah just right away that it might be a shade over. Now, don't, don't stop and think, what kind of plant is this? We, is this a gourd, or what kind of plant is it? People get hung up on these conversations. That's not what that's about. This is about God appointing a plant and God making it supernaturally grow over the shelter that Jonah created so that it was cool. And so he makes this plant grow fast, and it's obviously not natural, because Jonah knew that. He knew that God is in control of the plants. And how does Jonah respond? God knew that this, I mean, Jonah knew that this was God providing for him. And God showing him astounding mercy in his grumbling and complaining and hating. God sends this plant and it grows up over Jonah immediately. And Jonah's like, man, this is awesome. Talk about a little fickle. You know, today they probably like diagnose him or something and give him some medication and they would say that, you know, he was going to extremes here. I think all of us are tempted that way. And God was mercifully appointing this plant to remove Jonah's relatively minor discomfort at this point. Relatively minor discomfort. And yet, see, Jonah, he he was prophesying and telling the Ninevites that their city was going to be overthrown. That's not minor discomfort. It's going to be overthrown. They're going to be, they're going to be wiped out. Their, their enemy's going to be overthrown, and God is going to take them away. He's going to wipe them out. And yet Jonah, he's really happy about his own mercy from God. He's got him some shade now. And there's meant to be some irony in that. He wanted his own discomfort ease, but he didn't care at all about the extreme suffering and wrath that he hoped God would send on the city if they didn't repent. That reveals his heart. How about us? Do we care more about our own comfort than the impending wrath of God on the people around us? Ouch. It's not supposed to be so painful. Jonah's supposed to be this cool little story, right? God is so merciful to us. Any comforts that we enjoy, any shade in life that we enjoy, and I don't mean bad shade, but shade from heat in a good way that we enjoy in life is meant to, to show us the mercy of God so that we might extend mercy to others. And yet, Jonah, he's really excited, but he still doesn't get it. He doesn't make the connection. It doesn't humble him. It doesn't bring him to repentance. And I think that's what God intended. Now, God had a whole lesson planned for him, but I, I think if any point in time, Jonah would have stopped and repented and said, Oh, God, thank you that even though I'm, I'm this mean, hateful guy, and I, I, I don't want, I, I've said you were wrong and I was right, God, and I want them to be punished, God, thank you that you still show me mercy. And Lord, would you help me show mercy? He doesn't do that. He gets really excited because of a plant. He doesn't say he thanks God. He says he was exceedingly glad because of this plant. No, I love this plant. But he, and he knew that it came up really fast. That's not normal. And he didn't say, God, thank you. He didn't acknowledge God even then. So let's see what God does in verse 7. It says, but when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed something else. God appoints a plant, and then God appoints a worm. And then God appoints this worm and it attacks the plant and immediately withers and dies in the heat. But God's not done yet. He wants Jonah to see something. Jonah's not getting it. He needs some help. And so God helps him with his hard mercy. He says when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. He made Jonah really uncomfortable. He made a scorching hot wind blow on him. Like, if you ever open up the oven after you've been broiling something, and you're like, whoa. That's kind of the picture we meant to get of this scorching hot wind that blows on Jonah like a hot furnace breathing on him and God cranks up the thermostat he makes things even more unpleasant and makes the sun even brighter it blows the sun away I mean the clouds away and the sun beats down on his head and he says he's absolutely miserable he, he's faint now that's, a, that's a physical description he is physically faint now it is so hot it's probably 115 and now it's getting hotter and there's no shade and, and Jonah is faint if you ever had heat exhaustion or heat stroke you know what that feels like it's not pleasant Jonah is there but get this, Jonah doesn't call out and say, God, would you forgive me? Still's not there. He doesn't call out, God, would you forgive me? Lord, would you rescue me, God? Please forgive me. I saw your mercy in the plan. I didn't do anything, God. Would you please forgive me? I, I repent. Instead, he's, he's a miserable wretch, and he says, God, I'd be better off dead. It's better for me to live, I mean, to die than to live. And he says, really, Jonah? So you think your anger is righteous, too? So he asks him again the second time. When well, God asks you the same question twice, it's not a good thing. He says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? For real? He didn't create that plant. You didn't make it spring up. He says, are you angry for the plant? And listen when Jonah says. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. I'm so angry about that plant dying that I want to die. And you might laugh a little at Jonah, but if that was you or me... I think we'd be right there. Sometimes we are right there, aren't we? When things don't go our way in life. So we're meant to be shocked though and think, Jonah, you don't have any right to be angry about that plant because Jonah, you had nothing to do with the growing in the first place. And so God here, he unpacks, he analyzes Jonah's anger and he says, really Jonah? Let's look at whether your anger makes any sense or not. And then in verse 10 he says, you know, Jonah, you didn't create that plant. You didn't make the plant grow. You have no personal involvement in the plant's life. You know, you only benefited from it you couldn't have been att- that attached to it. It was only a day. You pitied the plant, something of insignificant value, and you only liked it because it benefited you. You delighted in the plant purely from self-interest. You, you don't, didn't love that plant. And if you're a gardener and you planted something, if you ever planted something and you really hope that it grows and you fertilize it and you tend it and you water it and you do all the right things you're supposed to do, You know, maybe if you're into orchids and you you have a nursery and you feed it, you invest time and energy over years, just this orchid can bloom once every 10 years. You might delight in that plant and might be sad when it dies. But he's saying, Jonah, I created that plant. I made it spring up and and you didn't make it grow. It came into a night and perished in a night. You're just self-seeking here. Jonah, you only want mercy for yourself and it's all about you. It's not about me. And then he says, you know, paraphrasing, by the way, Jonah, I I created people too. I didn't just create the plant. I have a vested interest in that plant. I created all creation, including animals and all these people that you're hating right now. He says, Jonah, if you can show concern for something like a plant you have no invested interest in, shouldn't God Almighty show concern for something like the city of Nineveh where there are more than 120,000 people who are clueless? He says, not to mention a lot of livestock. I love that little detail. God cares about his creation. God even cares about that. God even has mercy on animals. He's like, Jonah, I, I, I have an, an investment here. I'm, I'm the creator. I created everything. I have mercy in all I've made. And you didn't make that plant. and you just pitied it because it served you and it was gone. All, the only thing you were sad about was that it was taken away from you. How often do we, get, we only get sad because things are taken away from us or because we experience consequences in life? Jonah pitied this plant. What we're meant to see is that he had no pity for the people of Nineveh that were of immensely more value than some gourd or whatever kind of plant it was. He, he, Jonah didn't even pity the animals. And God's saying, look, if you're going to pity a plant, at least pity the animals. And much less than that, these, these people who don't know their left and their right. What does he mean by that? He means people who have no sense. They're they're like children. He's not talking about that they're really, literally children here. That's probably the whole population of it. But they're like children. They don't know good from bad. They weren't raised with the law and the covenant. They don't have the rich heritage that you had, that all the Israelites had. They don't have this background of good teaching. They don't have all these things. And yet, when I sent you, they heard my word. They repented. They believed. And you have no mercy for them? They don't know any better Of course they sin. They're sinners. Of course they're evil. They don't know any better. They can't know their left and their right. What we're meant to see, the Israelites are meant to see, is the Israelites needed God's mercy. But didn't the, the Ninevites really need it? Didn't they need God's mercy too? You know, I can't help but think about Jesus when he was on the cross and as he was dying on the cross, you see the same kind of language that Jonah, God uses to Jonah, says they don't know the right hand from their left and and then you see Jesus dying on the cross and he looks out to the very people who are crucifying him and he says, Father, forgive them. Why? For they don't know what they're doing. And the account ends there. That's an abrupt way to end a story, by the way. You know, I like stories that wrap up. I like stories that have some closure here. And Jonah doesn't end that way on purpose. There's there's not closure for us. There's not a wrap up. There's not this great denouement. There's not this this completion to the story. It ends with God's accusation against Jonah and saying, Jonah, I showed you mercy, and you've had the law and the prophets, and you Israelites, you've had all these good things, and yet you continue to be like this, Jonah. And yet, shouldn't you have mercy on the Ninevites the first time they hear it? Shouldn't you have mercy? And it's an abrupt ending. We don't hear that, God, that Jonah answered God's question at all. And it ends with Jonah being a failure and a terrible example. I think that's on purpose. I actually believe that, that Jonah, because we have details here about Jonah's heart, what was going on and what he said. I think Jonah was retelling this story a few years later probably and saying, I want them to learn from my bad example. I want them to learn how not to respond to God, and I want them to see God's mercy. And, and when a story ends like that, you ever, you ever put yourself into a story? When, when my family, we read, we read novels, and we do these uh, books on, on audio. I almost said books on tape, but that just how old I am. So books on audio, and people would be like, what's tape? Um, but any, um, books on audio, and we listen to them, and I love a book when it wraps up nicely. When a book does not wrap up nicely, it bothers me because I'm invested in the story, I'm like, that was a terrible ending. Because I'm in the story, I'm there, and we're meant to see ourselves in the story. We're meant to put ourselves in the story and say, what a terrible ending. But we're meant to see that God's asking us this question too, not just Jonah. The intent of the story is for the listener to see that the evil Ninevites needed mercy. And for, for the listener to grapple with God's question that's the thing that's been hanging in the air how do we respond to God's mercy shouldn't other evil people receive God's mercy too I think God wants us all to learn from Jonah to see we're we're self-righteous just like Jonah we need God to have mercy on us for our self-righteous anger. Jonah here is I don't know exactly what happened but Jonah here is at least at this point he's he's the older brother he's the Pharisee he's He's the one that Jesus said, you whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but man, inside you're full of dead bones. You don't really love me for who I am. You love me for who I, what I can get for you, what I can do for you. The reader's meant to be shocked to see that this prophet, the prophet of God, the very one who spoke the oracles of God, he ends with God saying, you should have mercy and you're having no mercy. And he's ending with this looming condemnation of God over him. Meant to see ourselves like Jonah. Meant to see, and what what God's showing here is that He's like Jonah. The biggest sinner is not the Ninevites; it's you, Jonah. The biggest sinner in the room is not the people you hate the most, who think are the worst. It's you. Biggest sinner is not the people who you have so offended you. It's you. And so Jonah and Israelites—they knew better. They were wrongly angry at God. In Jesus' story, the the prodigal, the sins of the younger brother would have been disgusting to the Pharisees. He, he, had, he had gone and, and done the worst things and engaged in an absolute moral debauchery with um, many women and, and drinking and all kinds of the, the worst things that the Pharisees could have imagined. Jesus is telling a parable to the Pharisees and Not only did he waste everything, so he was wasteful and he was full of debauchery and and did unspeakable acts with others and against others, and then you find him at the lowest of the low places when he is feeding pigs, and pigs were unclean animals that they wouldn't even go near, and he's in this trough with the pigs, and he's eating the slop that they eat. He's at the lowest of the low, and the Pharisees are like, yeah, that guy deserved it. And yet, he came back in the story that Jesus tells, and he just sought mercy, not because he deserved it or earned it. Because he needed it. It says the father welcomes him back with open arms. And not only that, he, he puts clean robes on him. Meant to symbolize the righteousness that we receive from the father. He puts a ring on him meant to symbolize that, that God, the father makes him rule and reign. Gives him authority again that he does not deserve. Did not earn. That he gave up. And he kills a fatted calf and he has this feast. And celebrates the return. He says, The son who was dead is now alive. He's lost and now found. And, the, and then that parable as well the older brother, he's really angry. He's very angry, self righteous. The father says that just like you should rejoice, that God's always been just, I've always been with you, been kind to you. It's, it's right to celebrate this lost son being made alive. And Jesus. Kind of left it as a cliffhanger for the Pharisees in the same way that Jonah ends and he leaves it as this cliffhanger of self-righteousness. Pharisees are meant to put themselves in the shoes of the older son. They needed mercy. They should show mercy to those who are in sin. So often as Christians, we can think that we're just the younger son, but you know, when we become Christians, often we become the older son. It is... Two ways to run from God. We can run from God by going our own way. We can run from God by trying to attain righteousness on our own, being self-righteous. Both are abhorrent. Both are in need of mercy. (laughs) Jesus was talking to his disciples one day, and he tells them about church discipline and how you confront your brother, and after... A couple times, then you go to him and then you tell it to the church. And in our modern ears, we think, oh my gosh, tell it to the church. That's really horrifying. But then what Peter hears, Peter's like, wait a minute, I, if, if, you, if I forgive my brother, I mean, if he comes to me and he asks my forgiveness, then I've won my brother. But how many times do I have to do that? Because I can't imagine doing the same thing over and over and over again. And the Pharisees say, hey, do this twice. The third time, you can, you can ignore them. But Jesus, how about this? Um, seven times, the, the number of perfections. So double the Pharisees, say plus one. Jesus, I'm gonna forgive them that many times. That's good, right? Jesus is like, no, Peter, you're missing the story. You're missing, you're missing the point here. You're, you're missing that it's about the mercy you've received and it's meant to be passed on. And so he tells them this parable, another parable, of a wicked servant who, who owes, and says, 10,000 talents. a talent is about 20 years' wages. And so he owes, in today's wages, at a worker, maybe, say, average $50,000, he owed about $10 billion in today's money. it's a lot of money, right? Somebody won about a billion and a half. We thought that was a lot. But this guy gets this major debt of $10 billion, and so he goes to this master, and he says, hey, master, I'll repay you what I owe. Now, think about that. If you made 50000 a year, repaying $10 billion is a 200,000-year effort. That's not doable. That's what, that's what Jesus is trying to say here. And, and, and he says, the master had pity, same word in Jonah, pity, mercy, mercy. He had pity on them. Should I have not had pity? Mercy, same word, just translated different ways. So the master had pity on him, not because he would repay him. The master probably rolled his eyes, but, and he forgives him. man goes away. The next thing we see is this, this, this person who'd been pay, who been owed 200,000 years worth of wages. He, he goes and he starts choking his fellow servant and says, pay me what you owe. And he owes a significant amount. That's a 30 years wages, about $16,000 today if you will, so that's I'd like that back if it was me, but he starts choking him and and the servant says, hey, have patience with me, I'll repay you, and he probably could. And he didn't have patience with him when it was realistic, when it wasn't anything in comparison. He throws him in jail and the master finds out and the master then says, you wicked servant. Look at Matthew 18, 32, he says, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Not because you were going to repay me. Because you asked. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In anger, his master delivered him into the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. How we respond to the mercy of God is important to God still. That's what we're meant to see in Jonah. God takes seriously how we respond to his mercy. It's meant to challenge us. It's meant to change our hearts. It's meant to change our very ideas of justice. It's, it's meant to challenge the way we live towards other people. So how about you? Do we, do we forgive those who have sinned against us? Do we think of ourselves, the wicked servant has been forgiven much and should forgive much? What do we do with God's mercy? Every day you have breath and life and health and... Every good thing comes down from the Father above. Any good gift that you have is God's mercy. In the midst of all of those things, we have the, the ultimate mercy in, in God forgiving us, not because we earned it, but because we just asked. God, would you forgive me? I repent. I turn from my sins. I don't, I don't want to, I can't go my own way, Lord. I, I, I realize that I need you. I need to repent like the Ninevites did. I repent, and I turn to you and say, God, would you please have mercy How do we respond when he gives it to us, when he gives us the greatest gift of all? He gives us eternal forgiveness, once and for all, not because we do anything. He said, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Boy, that's an echo. That's really close wording. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? That is close wording to the wording of God's question to Jonah. Should I not have had mercy? Jonah ends with God asking him a question. I think Jonah retold his account like this. Israelites have put themselves in the place of Jonah, and by God's grace, he tells the account like that for us. Put ourselves in the place of Jonah. When God asking us, should I not have had mercy? Should we not also have mercy on our fellow debtors? How do do you treat and view other people? Do you treat and view other people with the same mercy you've received? Do we forgive as we've been forgiven or we choke other people? Unfortunately, I I look and see, you know what, so many times when I get angry at my family or other people who are close to me, it's because I'm not having mercy. I'm not extending mercy to them like I I need. I'm demanding justice from them. Should we not also have mercy on our fellow debtors? I like how Leslie Allen, he, he says of Jonah 4, he says, A Jonah lurks in every Christian heart, whimpering his insidious message of smug prejudice, empty traditionalism, and exclusive solidarity. He that has ears to hear, let him hear, and allow the saving love of God, which has been outpoured in his own heart, to remold his thinking and social orientation. Amen. Let's pray, and Joe, if you have a song, we love it. We can rejoice in the mercy and grace of God, but let's pray right now and thank God for his mercy to us.